The world of sports has long been a contested playing field for social change. When Jackie Robinson broke the colour barrier in baseball in 1947, it was widely assumed that other heroic male athletes would follow subsequent sports. So when Althea Gibson, a young woman who grew up in Harlem playing paddle tennis, became the first black athlete to win a major title in 1956, she shocked the tennis world. Women's history in sports has in fact been a long series of shocks that have reshaped the world of athletics, as well as the possibilities that exist for women everywhere. This is Rachel Havard with the Oxford Comment. On today's episode, we discuss the lives, careers and lasting legacies of two of the great women athletes who broke the barriers and served as examples to the women athletes who followed. For our first interview, Ashley Brown, the author of Serving Herself, Life and Times of Althea Gibson, spoke with my colleague Megan Schaefer about the tennis player and golfer who was one of the most famous sportswomen of the mid-20th century. Could you please introduce yourself, Ashley? What is your field of expertise and how did you get involved in this field? Certainly. I'm Ashley Brown, Assistant Professor and Alan H. Selig Chair in the History of Sport and Society at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. I'm an expert on sport history, women's history, and African-American history. In terms of my interests coming together, uh, I'm someone who has long enjoyed sports and someone who has uh, long had an affinity for and appreciation for history. You mash these two things together and this is what you get. My book is Serving Herself, The Life and Times of Althea Gibson, a biography of the trailblazing American athlete who took the world of tennis by storm. What motivated you to study and write about her? Althea Gibson was one of the great athletes of the 20th century in terms of what she accomplished, but also all that she, in many respects, overcame, certainly all that she persevered and, and went through. Uh, she won 11 Grand Slams, that's across singles, doubles, and mixed doubles. She was also the first African-American to do a number of things. First of all, the first African-American to compete at the U.S. Nationals, which we now call the U.S. Open, the first African-American competitor at Wimbledon, the first winner of those two tournaments, the first African-American to win a Grand Slam tennis title. So that was her win at Roland Garros, the French Open in 1956. And then winning Wimbledon and the U.S. Open in 1957 and then successfully defending those titles in 1958. She was also a multi-sport athlete. So Gibson became the first African-American to compete on the LPGA Tour. She was a tennis player in addition to being a golfer. In terms of how I came to Gibson, there's a bit of a personal angle. I'm a golfer. I had known about her exploits in tennis, just the basics like most people in terms of being the first in many of those categories in tennis. Uh, but soon after I took up golf, I decided I wanted to learn more about the history of African-Americans in the sport. And at the time, things seemed a little bit lopsided. You had uh, terrific works, popular works on the study or, or on the game of golf that were mainly focused on the PGA Tour, You know, some looks at the women's tour, the LPGA Tour, and when you saw African-Americans in the pictures or when they recovered at that time, uh, the stories were primarily about caddies, the images of caddies. Uh, but fortunately, 
I came across a very nice coffee table book that was about the history of African-Americans in golf. And I looked at the chapter that was specifically devoted to women in the game and learned that Althea Gibson, of course, crossed that major color barrier in, in golf in 1963. So at that point, I began to think to myself, this woman integrated tennis, then she went on to integrate golf. Who is this woman and, and what must her life have been like? What must she have been like? And that set me off on the long journey of, of a little bit more than a decade of researching and writing this book. Can you explain the importance of Gibson's career and the struggles she faced along the way? Certainly. She faced a number of struggles. First of all, let's think about the time when she's playing tennis. She's doing this in the 1940s and the 1950s. And this, of course, is the moment we think about the long black freedom struggle uh, of African-Americans and people, uh, Africans who were brought to America as uh, resisting, struggling against, battling so much uh, from the very beginning. And in her case, she's doing this in the period after World War II when African-Americans and their allies were definitely thinking about ways in which to help America achieve, reach its destiny after the war. Uh, and she's also doing this before and during the civil rights movement, when there are so many debates and conversations about how civil rights can be, and to the minds of some people, how civil rights should be achieved. And folks were thinking, of course, about ways to uh, bridge divides through culture and through sport. She's doing this in uh, an individual sport. So there are no teammates, right, uh, that she can frequently turn to for support or turn to for conversations. She travels alone. So she finds herself uh, very often facing discrimination in terms of finding accommodations, uh, discrimination in terms of travel. And tennis was not an inexpensive sport. In fact, it never has been. It's a game that's always been associated with the very well-off. And Gibson did not come from a financially prosperous background. Her parents had been sharecroppers in South Carolina. They migrated to Harlem, were there by the early 1930s. She was the oldest of five kids. And her father uh, really was very, very hard on her. She had a very difficult upbringing dropped out of high school when she was 14, she would be the first to say that one of the reasons that she made it, in addition to her own tenacity, was because she felt that she was fortunate that there were people who saw her and they saw her talent and her ability and they reached out to help her. But all through her tennis career, she faced financial struggles of trying to figure out how to get herself from one tournament to another, uh, how to have the resources that she needed to play while at the same time having very little money. And she's also playing sports at a time when people were very often downcast on the idea of women as athletes. She's playing tennis, and tennis, to its credit, has a long history of being regarded as acceptable for appropriate for women, but she's also an African-American woman who's playing tennis. And there's also a long history of African-Americans uh, playing the game but this wasn't a history, this wasn't a, a part of culture that most people in America were familiar with. 
So folks were always looking at her as being a social misfit, uh, looking at her as somehow being this oddball who decides that when she sees something that appeals to her, she's going to do it. How were things different for Black female athletes compared to more well-known Black male athletes like Jackie Robinson and Arthur Ashe, who has been widely honored in the tennis world? That's a great question. Gibson was often called the Jackie Robinson of tennis, uh, but she didn't like that label. And we might think of a number of reasons why it didn't appeal to her, uh, but I think one of the major ones really had to do with gender and money. She was aware that Jackie Robinson always saw his exploits in sports, uh, the things that he did as avenues to try to, from his standpoint, improve conditions for, inspire, create change for other African-Americans. And you certainly see that in the way he carried out his career in baseball, but his exploits, the things that he did away from the game, and certainly after he retired. He was also really looked upon as this heroic figure among so many people from so many different backgrounds. Uh, there's uh, Traditionally, there's been this idea of really, I think, across groups, the idea of men as the leaders. And then you add, in the case of Jackie Robinson, he's this African-American man who uh, became the first black man to play Major League Baseball America's game in the 20th century. He's doing this after the war. And so he definitely uh, earned his spot on what we might think of as the Mount Rushmore of, of sports. Uh, in Gibson's case, because of these perceptions of women in sport as being somehow strange. Uh, she said that when she was in high school, she felt that girls looked upon her as if she were a quote unquote freak. She didn't necessarily uh, find herself received uh, with the same kind of warm welcome. And I think a big part of that was because many people, when they have these ideas about who the lead integrationist would be in sports, among African-Americans, but also among the, the dominant population of white Americans, the idea was, well, that first person, that first leader to achieve anything in sports, including tennis, that person would be a man. And of course, Althea Gibson wasn't just a woman, but she was a woman from a poor, from a working class background, which seemed to be anathema uh, to what tennis was all about. And so it wasn't it wasn't a natural thing for people to decide, oh, this is going to be the person, this is the face of African-American tennis. And Robinson was able to, for the time, uh, he was able to cash in uh, simply by being the first, but also the fact that he was a professional baseball player and he was very good, to say the least. Gibson was playing amateur tennis. So she wasn't making any money. Uh, and of course it, it takes money to support other people. Uh, and she just, she never had the resources to do the things financially that maybe people imagined uh, she would do. Uh, she really had to work and fight to, to use a phrase to keep her own body and soul together. Uh, so in terms of being able to uh, use her resources to support people on some kind of activist level, that was something that was beyond her. Then you fast forward and you look at Arthur Ashe. Arthur Ashe was, to many people, especially in the African-American media, he was kind of the savior that they had been looking for. He was young, uh, 
many people thought that he was handsome and charismatic. And then think about when he makes his way in tennis. He does this at uh, the end of the 1960s, really starting earlier than that, his own experience in amateur tennis. But he wins the U.S. Open in 1968. This is the dawn of the Open era. And he most definitely was able to make quite a bit of money in terms of endorsements. Uh, people were attracted to him just as this unique uh, social and cultural figure. And he was able to open doors and inspire people, I think, really because of the fact that he was a man in sports, and he was a man in sports who made his way at a, a perfidious time. Uh, these were all things that, that eluded Gibson. So she wound up in many ways being negatively compared to Jackie Robinson in her youth, and then when she's in her middle age and Arthur Ashe is uh, the man in, on the stage and in the spotlight, she finds herself cast in his shadow, too. Gibson paved the way for the female tennis players that followed, from Margaret Court to the Williams sisters. Is this her legacy? I think it's a major part of her legacy. She certainly played the power game of tennis. So when you think about her arsenal, the attributes of her game, you see again and again in media coverage in America and around the world that she had a very hard and fast serve. And... When she played tennis, there were still ideas that somehow women played a lesser game of tennis than men. And yet, one of the things that she was able to do because of, I think, people seeing her as a novelty, but also because of her excellence in the game, there were people who came out to matches to see her play and to watch women's tennis who previously had not attended matches before. And so she definitely helped a lot of other organizations, tennis organizations, make money in terms of ticket sales and gate receipts because people were just so fascinated and curious about this African-American woman who's playing this game of tennis that had been so associated with the white elite on both sides of the Atlantic and around the world. But she played this power game and she was someone who also was interested in the serve and volley style, which at that time was so associated with men's tennis. So there were players who came after her, like Billie Jean King, Darlene Hart, Maria Bueno, who played in a similar style and at different times remarked upon that they in some way were inspired by the way that she played the game. And sports writers observed the similarities uh, in those three players in particular, how they played uh, compared to how Gibson played. I think also her legacy is deeply bound up with what we see in terms of African-American women in tennis today. So indeed, the Williams sisters, fortunately, toward the end of her life, she had a couple of phone conversations that were with Venus Williams that seemed to be very inspirational to Venus. But we also see her legacy just in the fact that African-American women who played professional tennis after her as early as the 1970s and the 1980s, so think Leslie Allen, Zena Garrison, both of whom that were briefly in some way uh, coached by her, met her and knew her, uh, that Gibson had been inspiring black women in tennis for a number of years, even before the Williams sisters. And it, it means a lot to see someone, right? And to know that someone existed before you did. And I think for Alan and for Garrison and, and for others, Katrina Adams, a former president of the USTA has said this, uh, that simply knowing that Althea Gibson had come before them and achieved the things that she had decades before that was highly inspirational and, and important for them. 
How do you think sports have changed for women in the 70 years since Gibson played? Sports have changed dramatically for women. I mentioned the fact that Gibson played amateur tennis during her heyday in the 1950s. And now, of course, we have and have had for more than 50 years now the arrangement where the pros in open tennis, of course, can play can play against amateurs. But I think the more important thing is the fact that they can play in the Grand Slams and all the tournaments and still make money. The fact that they can uh, sign lucrative endorsement deals and carry out their careers. Those, of course, were things that were not available to Gibson and to the women of her generation. We also see the success that women have had in sports. Think about the American women's soccer team and their battle, their struggle, their successful fight for equal pay. And just the fact that they were able to get so many people around the world to agree with them and with their cause. In previous years, women who fought for themselves in sports, as in other realms, have not been looked upon so positively. I think also just the fact that so many people, not stars, but just everyday people, uh, play tennis, play other sports. Think about also women who play golf, these ideas of sport for fitness, uh, for recreation. Uh, that These are all things that, as I discuss in the book, Serving Herself, these are things that Gibson very much believed in. So in the early 1960s, when she gave speeches, she talked about the importance of fitness and exercise for all people. And I think she'd be very pleased by the conversations that we're having today about health and exercise and wellness. Do women still face major obstacles in sports today? They certainly do. It seems that every day there's some new headline that tells us about or that raises the possibility of, of inequality of women in sports being treated differently. So we can think about in the last few years the controversies over some major American corporations and what happens to women who are under contract with them, what happens to those women when they find that they're expecting a child or they're thinking about starting families. It seems that they have troubles and ordeals that male athletes don't face. There was the recent story uh, just this past fall about a women's college basketball tournament that was held in Nevada and questions about just the, uh, the atmosphere and even medical treatment, uh, the opportunities for spectators in terms of seating to see the games, the, the basketball games. Uh, and it raised the possibility among some uh, again, in the world of college women's sports, that maybe the women in basketball were being treated differently than their male counterparts would have been. We also had just a few years back thinking about um, the NCAA and March Madness uh, and access to uh, the weight room to fitness equipment. Again, ideas that maybe somehow people think, or maybe we might even say they don't think, uh, about women in sports as being on the same plane and therefore as needing access to the same resources and the same materials that male athletes would have. So uh, to use the, to think about the uh, motto for the WTA in the very beginning, uh, yes, you know, women have come a long way in sports, but it seems that ideally men and women would come together uh, to see that they, they achieve even more. Ashley, thank you so much for coming on our show today. Thanks for having me, Megan. I really enjoyed this. Our next guest is Susan Ware, 
the author of American Women's History, A Very Short Introduction, and Game Set Match, Billie Jean King and the Revolution in Women's Sports, published by UMC Press. Susan shared with us some background on how King leveraged her career as a form of activism for gender equality and discussed how sports have changed for women athletes in the years since. Susan, how did you get involved in your area of study? Well, I've had the lucky good fortune of being a historian of American women and a feminist for my entire career. Uh, I got active um, as a feminist when I was in college and decided to study women's history. And I've been able to combine those two interests ever since. And it's taken me in very fascinating directions as I've, as I've explored various aspects of American women's history, mainly through biography, um, the history of aviation, the history of radio, and with the case of Billie Jean King, the history of sports. Could you tell us a bit about King's career and the significance of the famous Battle of the Sexes against Bobby Riggs? Well, Billie Jean King is, is still is, she's about to turn 80 later this year, one of the most significant um, tennis players, I think really in, in the history of the sport. And, and one of the things that I find so fascinating about her is that she loved tennis. She really wanted to make her name in tennis, but she always had a broader agenda. And that agenda had two parts. One was to make tennis a popular sport as popular, she hoped, as other sports like soccer, football, uh, baseball. And she also wanted to make sure that women tennis players got the respect and the compensation that she believed they deserved. And those two battles were always in the forefront of her mind and she really played um, a very significant role in, let's say, founding the Women's Tennis Association, which is like a player's union, bargaining with um, tennis tournaments for equal pay. Uh, the US Open came on board in 1973. Unfortunately, Wimbledon took a little bit longer before it granted the women players the same prize money as men. It was well into the 21st century. Uh, but she was always willing to use her sports celebrity for the larger cause. And I think given that kind of, it's unusual for, a, for, a, for an athlete to be so politically attuned. Uh, in many ways, it's, it's a difference from Althea Gibson, who very much wanted to as Ashley Brown's book says, serve herself. Her priority was really her own career. And Billie Jean King had a broader vision. And I think that helps to explain how she got caught up in this 1973 battle of the sexes, which on the surface, it just seems like such a bizarre thing. Why in the world was everybody talking about this tennis match between a woman player at the top of her career and a 55-year-old guy who was definitely not at the peak of his career anymore. Why did this turn into a battle of the sexes? 
And why did people care so much about it? And I think there, it's a question of timing. 1973 was a moment when the women's movement in the United States uh, was really taking off. All of a sudden, questions of equity and fairness in politics and society and marriage and credit and sports were finally on the agenda. People realized that women hadn't been getting their fair shake in, in um, any of these areas, especially in sports. And yet people were very concerned or un, ill at ease, I would say, with all the changes that were going on in women's lives. I mean, women were having careers, women were going to college, all kinds of things that traditionally they hadn't done. So it was a topic that was kind of like a raw nerve for a lot of people. And they were supportive, but not supportive, it, but it was something that was very much on their mind. And then here comes along this tennis match, which somehow comes to embody it. And I think it's partly because the lines are so clearly drawn. Bobby Riggs paints himself as a male chauvinist pig who says these outrageous things like women should be barefoot and pregnant in the kitchen and who would pay to watch women tennis players play all these things, which he doesn't actually really believe, but he knows the press will just eat up. And then on the other side, you've got Billie Jean King standing in literally for all women saying, we are as good as men. Uh, we don't clutch. We are good players. We are fun to watch. Uh, and so you've got these two opposing viewpoints and they are going to come together in a tennis match and there's going to be a winner. And there's also going to be a loser. And very few national debates have that kind of clarity. And everybody gets all in. I mean, people are making bets. People watch this. They're really on the edge of their seats. And luckily, <laughs> at least from my perspective, Billie Jean King easily defeats him. Uh, and it is such an important moment for women's sports and for feminism in general. Uh, and I think that probably until the day she dies, people will be asking her about this or telling her what it was like when they watched it on television. And I can certainly remember watching it and being on the edge of my seat. For her, it wasn't the most important thing she did in her tennis career. I think that would be uh, her founding of the Women's Tennis Association and also many of her major victories um, like at Wimbledon and the US Open. But she certainly recognized the importance of it as an event in popular culture and also as it crystallized or encouraged this burgeoning movement for women to play sports. Uh, so it was it was quite something. And come September, it will be 50 years uh, since it happened. So it's going to be an interesting moment to reflect on how much has changed and how much still needs to be done. What was the culture around women's tennis at that time? And what was Billie Jean King pushing against? Do you think she was trying to prove something? And if so, what do you think that was? Well, I, I think what we sometimes forget now that 
professional tennis is a very successful uh, undertaking really around the world was in the 1960s, 50s and 60s when Billie Jean King was growing up and learning to play also the same with Althea Gibson. It was really a country club sport. It was an elite sport played, not played and watched not by the masses, but usually by affluent people, uh, predominantly white, uh, in an atmosphere that was really quite elitist. And one of the things that Billie Jean King really fought against her whole career, she was from a lower middle class family in, uh, in California. Her father was a firefighter and she didn't like the snootiness of these country clubs. She knew she was as good as any of them. And she wanted tennis to be available to everybody to be able to play and also to be able to watch. And so that's the atmosphere that she's trying to break out of. And also in terms of tennis history, there's a very important moment in 1968 when the tennis establishment abandons its previous commitment to amateurism, saying that you had to, you could play, but you couldn't win prize money, even though the leading players were being paid under the table. And they moved to a professional basis. And that is really only five years before the Battle of the Sexes. So a lot is up for grabs at this moment in tennis in the 1970s. And in some ways, it's a perfect way for women like Billie Jean King to get in at the ground level and say, hey, wait a minute, if we're rethinking tennis and how it's going to be as a sport, we have to make sure that women are getting their fair share. And that's what she dedicated herself to doing. At the same time, she was pursuing an incredibly active tennis career and winning all of these tournaments and making money and, and all kinds of other things. So she was one busy woman in the 1970s. Why do you think tennis of all sports became such a battleground for not just gender, but also race and class? There's a reason why we are talking about these pioneers in tennis. And it's not just that they were fantastic tennis players. One of the barriers to women's participation in sports traditionally was a sense well, that they shouldn't be too athletic, they shouldn't sweat, they should be ladylike, all of these ridiculous things, I think. Um, and tennis was actually a sport which, because of its country club associations, could be pursued by women in a way that rugby or women's basketball raised all kinds of red flags, but tennis was marginally okay. Um, and so women had always had a role in the larger tennis. I mean, Wimbledon had always had men's, the men's tournament and the ladies tournament. So you had that kind of built in pathway for women to excel. But because it is a sport that is accessible, it is also at some point in 
especially in post-war America or probably around the world, going to start appealing to more than just the traditional elite white male or even elite white females who had played it. Uh, and I think Althea Gibson is a good example of how the racial question in the context of the 1950s plays out in tennis. And with her, it's literally just getting her access to tournaments, which were traditionally, if not legally, there are all kinds of ways to keep blacks out and they were being excluded. And so in order for her to play, she had to be able, she really had to break the, the color barrier uh, in a way that other professional athletes like uh, in baseball were, were doing at the same time. But it's not just a racial barrier, it's also a class barrier. Who gets to play tennis? And here again, Billie Jean King is someone who felt like an outsider um, because she wasn't from a rich family she couldn't afford fancy tennis clothes. Her mother sewed her tennis outfits for her. That was the only way she could play. And she always resented that. And, and it also limited her opportunities. She didn't have the family resources to go to tournaments unless she got, unless she was paid. Well, there wasn't any prize money, so how was she gonna get paid? So there's an exclusionary aspect, which also worked against Althea Gibson. She had to find ways, find sponsors who would get her her training, who would sponsor her travel, who would get her into these tournaments, who would find places for her to stay because she often could not stay in hotels because of her race in segregated America in the 1950s. So there's a sense of outsiders breaking in. What I hadn't really thought of in, until I really read Ashley Brown's book about Althea Gibson was the sense of being outsiders on the basis of sexuality and whether there was a bond there as well. Brown uses the term queer to talk about um, Althea Gibson, not in the sense of saying, oh, I found she's found all these lesbian partners, but just being on the outside of traditional heteronormativity, to use a big word. And Billie Jean King was that way too. She had doubts about her sexuality um, much more um, her whole career. And so the there's a sort of sub story there where she's trying to figure out how to present a public persona that conforms to American ideals and yet her private life doesn't. And so in a way I hadn't really thought of both Billie Jean King and Althea Gibson are queer. Uh, they are outsiders and outsiders in many ways, race, class, gender identity. And I think that is a fascinating new way of thinking about their careers. How do you think she viewed herself in the context of Althea Gibson's legacy? Well, Billie Jean King has always had a really strong sense of history, tennis history and history in general. 
And she knew about the women and men who had come before her in, in tennis history. And I am sure that she felt that the opportunities she had were very much based on the contributions of those who had come before. And there's a wonderful quote from her about every time that she steps onto center court of Wimbledon, um, she thinks about the women who have played there, uh, Helen Wills Moody and Alice Marble and um, Suzanne Longlin and Althea Gibson. So that when she takes the court, she has these women with her. And when you're Billie Jean King, you know that she's already thinking 30 years into the future and she's hoping and she's gonna be right that when women players like Serena or Venus Williams take center court at Wimbledon, they will be standing and drawing on the legacy of Billie Jean King. Can you talk to us about how the passage of Title IX in the 1970s changed the landscape for women in sports? And can you please explain what Title IX is for our non-American listeners? Well, one of, one of the things that's so interesting about looking at Billie Jean King's career in the 1970s is that the peak of it is at the same moment a very important piece of legislation was passed in the United States. Uh, and the legislation is referred to by its shorthand of Title IX. And what it is is a law that mandates um, no discrimination in any program, educational program that receives federal money through all levels of the educational system from kindergarten through college. And at first, this law was seen as mainly affecting uh, areas like admissions. There were quota, arbitrary quotas that said only certain numbers of women could be admitted, even if they had higher test scores than men. If they reached the quota, they couldn't. Discrimination that if a high school student got pregnant, she was automatically expelled. There were a whole range of, of things that in the, as, we, as the country began to realize that uh, women's issues were important, needed to be addressed. And so this law was passed to do that. What they didn't know, because they hadn't really thought of it, was what a huge impact it would have on sports. And I think here, what we need to realize is that a lot of times sex discrimination, gender discrimination, can be very subtle. If there are no women teaching in the English department, they can say, well, it's because women aren't interested there because they don't want to get doctorates. When you look at sports programs at that time and you realize that the men's teams get 99% of the budget, and if they're lucky, the women's teams get maybe 1%, it's pretty easy to say, to get someone's attention and say, that is not fair, that is not equal. So sports really clarifies in a, in a very concrete way what a lot of activists were talking about in terms of unequal resources. And so Title IX quickly, um, not quickly enough, but starting in the 1970s, begins to 
open up more participation opportunities and resources for women in sports. And this is an ongoing process. Title IX just had its 50th anniversary last year. Uh, there has been huge change uh, in those years, but also there is still so much more to be done because women are still nowhere near parity when it comes to access to athletic opportunities. And this is something that Billie Jean King has made a focus of her career and her public speaking is speaking out for more opportunities for women to play sports. She know, knows how important it was to her and she wants to share that with everybody, but it is still an uphill battle. And yet Title IX has really played a transformational role in the United States. And then I think by extension, the women's sports revolution is happening around the world in opening opportunities um, for women. But as I have said, um, there still is a long way to go before we're anywhere near equality in this area. Just to follow up on that, how else do you think sports have changed for women in the last 50 years? I think one of the things that's interesting, uh, and I'll, I'll backtrack a little bit to, to talk about my own experience. I graduated from college in 1972, the same year that Title IX was passed. And I never had access to sports, um, certainly not team sports. And I would have loved it. I later realized that I'm quite a good athlete. I became a runner and a tennis player, partly influenced by Billie Jean King. And yet I never had those opportunities. Now I think younger women athletes often take those opportunities for granted. They're there, they've always had their teams. And what we really need to do is to help them see the history, this is me, being the historian telling them they need to know the history, how recent this access was. I mean, I'm not all that old, um, where women really couldn't play sports and that it was a hard fought battle to get these teams for women, to get them their uniforms, to get them their coaches, to get them their prize money if they set up their professional leagues. And that if we're not careful, there can be backsliding and things can start reverting back to privileging men's sports. And so while I am so happy for these generations of women who have the access to sports that I didn't have, I really hope that they realize that it is a, um, it's a battle that's not over yet and that it behooves them, I think, to keep raising the issues of equity like the women's soccer players are in the US and keep saying, this is not equal, this is not fair. We need to change this because it's going to be important for them and it's going to be important for future generations of female athletes. Um, and as we found and as Billie Jean King always said, women love sports. You just have to give them the opportunity. And that's really what her career was all about. In conclusion, 
What do you think still needs to change for women in sports? What are some of the pain points that still exist? Well, I would answer that in a, in a long way that will bring it back to tennis. Title IX only applies to educational institutions. It has nothing to say about women's professional sports. And yet we know in our culture that professional sports are what get the attention and what get the money. And tennis was very lucky in that it broke into the wider world of sports in the 1970s um, at a time when it was still fairly small scale. It was before ESPN. It was before all this money flooded in. When other sports like women's basketball and, um, and women's soccer were trying to break in, that whole male sports culture, again, to me embodied by ESPN, was much more entrenched and it's been much harder for women to break into that. I mean, even as sportscasters, all kinds of ways. And so I think it is, it's a real challenge. But to me, the way to build this is to start young, to give girls opportunities when they're growing up, have them compete alongside the boys because they can, and often they're as good, if not better than the boys. And what a great experience for them. Uh, and then to just keep moving that forward, active lives and opportunities for recreation and sports. And not everybody's gonna be a professional athlete and that shouldn't be the aspiration. I, I just want people to play sports and, and have fun doing it. But it, even though I'm amazed at how much has happened in the last 50 years, sometimes I get discouraged that we haven't moved closer, we haven't done more. Uh, but then I just remind myself that feminism is an ongoing process and it will always be necessary. Uh, and sports is a, is a perfect place to do that because everybody cares about sports. And it is really, it's in some ways a perfect way to get the ideas of modern feminism across. You talk to 10 year old kids, boys and girls, and you say, should the boys have all the good balls and, and, and access to uh, playing fields and the girls play in the old gym? And, and they get it. They say, no, that's not fair. We need to keep that kind of awareness always in the forefront and move it forward. And then maybe then <laughs> things will continue to change. So it's a struggle. And again, just to bring it back to Billie Jean King, here she is almost 80 years old and she's still out there on the hustings raising these issues and she will until the day she dies and God bless her for that. Thank you for joining us, Susan. It's been an absolute pleasure talking to you. Thanks for having me. Uh, it's, it's always a treat to be able to talk about Billie Jean King. We want to thank our guests. Ashley Brown and Susan Ware for speaking with us about Althea Gibson, Billie Jean King and their legacies. Please check out our show notes on the OUP blog for a recommended reading list exploring just a few of the ideas discussed today. New episodes of the Oxford Comment will premiere on the last Tuesday of each month. Be sure to follow Oxford Academic on Facebook, Twitter, SoundCloud and YouTube to stay up to date on upcoming podcast episodes. While you're at it, Please do subscribe to The Oxford Comment wherever you regularly listen to podcasts 
including Apple, Google and Spotify. Lastly, we want to thank the crew of the Oxford Comment for their assistance on today's episode. Episode 80 was produced by Stephen Philippi and Sarah Butcher. This is Rachel Havard. Thank you for listening.